This podcast is produced on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabeg, Haudenosaunee, Wendat, Cree, and other Indigenous peoples. We are mindful of broken covenants and the need to reconcile with all our relations. Together may we care for this land and each other, drawing on the strength of our mutual history of nation building through peace and friendship, being mindful of the ancestors and generations to come. Welcome to the Intersection Hub podcast, where we are making connections, fostering collaborations, and building community through candid conversations. I'm your host, Kimberly McKenzie, and I'm so glad you found us. I have been waiting for so long to share this episode with you, but I had to wait until my guest, Chandler Arnold, launched his new social enterprise, Untraditional Philanthropy. Um, A colleague once described Chandler as the kindest person ever to challenge you. I have to say that I agree with that. And I also have to confess that I think he's my new best friend. If you can put up with our first few minutes of banter, we then dive right into a super rich conversation about how Chandler is working to transform the philanthropic space. But first, let me tell you a little bit about him. Chandler is the founder and CEO of Untraditional Philanthropy, a bespoke donor advisory reimagining philanthropic decision-making by partnering with 40-plus social impact leaders worldwide who serve as one-on-one advisors to donors and clients. More than 80% of these experts identify as people of color, women, and or members of the LGBTQ2S community. Chandler honed his skills in the impact sector over 25 years as a successful founder, executive director, COO, CEO, and board member of a range of local, national, and global social enterprises. As the CEO, a COO of First Book, for example, Chandler led day-to-day operations and fundraising efforts for a global education equity organization, which distributed 160 million new books valued at $1 billion US to children in need during his tenure. Chandler has also developed social impact efforts with some of the country's wealthiest families and leading brands. These include Disney, Ford, KPMG, Pizza Hut, Ralph Lauren, Target, and others. Chandler's private sector experience also includes working as a consultant with the Boston Consultant Group in strategy and marketing with the Coca-Cola Company. Chandler is a proud social innovation geek. He graduated magna cum laude from Harvard with a concentration on social change in American history and literature, and he earned his MBA at Stanford. A frequent speaker about innovation and social change, Chandler has given guest lectures on social innovation at Yale, Columbia, and Georgetown. All to say that Chandler hangs out with some pretty cool people, and in this episode, he's hanging out with me. Chandler's also, Chandler and his husband, uh, and their two young children live in Washington, D.C., and I am so excited to share this conversation with you. Let's dive in. Chandler, I am so grateful that you joined us today, and I'm so excited for our conversation. Um, Welcome. I am so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. I just have a little, a couple of small things that I want to clear up right away. 
first of all, I bought a new coffee machine. It's an Nespresso and I might be talking faster than usual because it's so good. Not that Nespresso is sponsoring this podcast at all, but if they wanted to, they would be welcome to. Um, The other thing is my dog is grieving his testicles and he's under my desk (laughs) (laughs) with a cone. (laughs) <laughs> and and I just can't put him in his crate because I have to supervise him. So that's what is happening here with me. And I have to point out to listeners that you're in your closet. It's true. It's true. I <laughs> thought that I came out of the closet a long time ago. But uh, yes, I am back in because my husband and I have two small children. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was sort of doing a sound check earlier and you could hear a lot of them and not a lot of me. So I am. Yes, yes recording from inside my closet and it's just as glamorous as it sounds like it's it is so funny i'm sorry it's speaking <laughs> like that. It's funny. you do what you got to do right and actually the sound in a closet is much better for a lot of people it's totally true if we hadn't told them they would you know i could be in this super high-end recording you chamber um, <laughs> but this is even more fun because there's you know if i get cold there's a sweater right here Perfect. Hey, shout out to Tanya Bhattacharya who introduced us. I cannot say enough good things about Tanya. And and she's such a great example of how those of us in the social impact space uh, always get a chance to lift each other up. And the work she's doing is so amazing. And I'm honored to be associated with her. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm so grateful to have met her and to have met you. So she thought that we uh, might get along and she was right and uh i'm very interested and keen to chat about your new venture you have a lot of experience raising millions of dollars for great causes and in social entrepreneurship and you have this new thing um before we get into that I'd like to just hear a little bit, not too long, because I don't want to be too boring, but I want to set some context for who you are. How did you get into this sector? Um, well, thank you so much. I, um, you know, I think it starts with growing up. I grew up in a small town in the mountains of West North Carolina, which is a beautiful place to grow up. It's also very rural, very mm-hmm. conservative. Um, my family was very Baptist and I was a little gay kid growing up in that community. And, you know, I think from my earliest days, I sort of had this notion that I was different, but not in a way that was sort of obvious to people. Now, I did have all of the lyrics to Adonis Vogue written in Sharpie in on the wall of my room. So I guess if people look closely, they would have known. But like, for, the, for the most part, you know, I, I I sort of passed as this mainstream guy. And I I sort of realized that there was a power there because I could, you know, I was well liked, um, I, whatever. I, I And I could sort of use that position to help other people who were sort of on the fringes of our little society and in this little rural community um, who might have been left out for other reasons. And and that sort of stuck with me. Um, and I've always tried to sort of, I, I'm a very privileged guy um, and I've, I've wanted to use that privilege to help other people. Um, so I, you know, was super passionate about social impact in college, found a little public service program and then came to D.C. after graduation and, um, 
um, got an MBA along the way. And I, I've, I've spent about 20 years um, working with different social enterprise groups, working to advance social change. And a lot of that was around developing innovative models. And candidly, a lot of that was about fundraising. And mm -hmm. a lot of things worked really well. And and I also got really frustrated because I think it's it's much harder than it should be for effective nonprofits to connect with sources of capital to expand and scale their work. And and that's kind of brought me to the work that I'm doing today. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about that work that you're doing today. I also want to ask you if you know of this amazing musician, Jake Wesley Rogers. Have you heard of him? No, no, I would love oh, to. Okay. Um, he is going to be the next new Elton John. I was introduced to him um, on a Brené Brown podcast. We'll put the link in the show notes. I must remember to do that. But he also, he's a, he's a lot more obviously gay than you. <laughs> <laughs> and he was raised in a Southern Christian community. And in the Brené Brown podcast, he talks about that. And he talks about his becoming and how he's, he is using all that comes with that in his music. So I really want you to look him up because he's like my favorite musician right now. Um, Definitely. I would love to. So that part of your personal history is so interesting. And I can't help but be curious about, um, you will have a little signal if you just don't want to talk about it, but curious about, do you remember a moment or a time or a place where you just truly felt like all of you belonged? Well, you know, um, I, I should say I had a wonderful childhood. I, I was super lucky to have really supportive friends and family. Um, and, and it wasn't, it, it wasn't, um, my parents were very supportive when I came out. I, I did not have some of those really, really tough experiences that some people have. But I, I do remember, you know, praying for years and years that this part of me would go away. Um, and, you know, I think in college, um, my thesis advisor was gay. My minister, uh, Reverend Peter Gomes, who was a black gay Republican minister of Christian morals at Harvard. He spoke at Reagan and Bush's inaugurations. Holy cow. Um, <laughs> he was this bundle of incredible contradictions and the best speaker I've ever heard. And I think then I began to glimpse a life in which this wasn't a part of me that I hid, but it was a part of me that I sort of drew from and I, I do think in the process of coming out, I learned a lot of things about myself that have nothing to do with, with my sexuality. You know, um, I think that experience also helped me connect with others. I think it helped me to get in touch with vulnerability and authenticity and empathy and, um, you know, working to sort of draw from that to to help others. Um, and, and so I guess to answer your question, you know, we, maybe we all sort of spend some time running from things that actually end up being pretty amazing. Um, and so I think, you know, one thing that I bring to that, to this work is 
um, working with donors to help them because this work is very personal. Philanthropy is very personal to help them think about, you know, what what are the things in their life that they connect to on a deep level? What are their passions? You know, this is more than about writing a check, you know what are the causes that really resonate with them? And then what are the organizations that are advancing change in those areas that are really moving the needle so that they might connect with the leaders of those organizations as humans and as advocates and as ambassadors and as supporters, instead of just people that are writing a check. And I, I think that sort of that dynamic, you know, I, I don't think I would come, would have come to as fully if, if I hadn't had my own sort of journey to get here. <laughs> what I love about what you just did there, <laughs> I took you to a deeply personal place and you just magically brought it right back to the topic of the day. So <laughs> thanks for sharing your story because I think it's through our stories that other people can identify in and uh, it's just a great story. Um, and I let's jump into talking about traditional philanthropy or untraditional philanthropy but before we really dig into untraditional philanthropy can you just explain for people who might not know what you think of as air quote traditional philanthropy you know i'm i'm so glad you asked because i i want to be clear you know i don't think that philanthropy is a horrible thing or that traditional approaches to philanthropy are evil you know there there has been a lot of good done in our world over a long period of years with sort of air quotes more traditional approaches to this work and i honor and celebrate that and having been a practitioner for you know more than two decades i also believe that there are things that we can do to make this work more effective and more impactful and you know just like other industries you know the philanthropic industry um, can evolve. And there are a lot of people out there, you know, pushing that point. I'm certainly not the first to say that. I think for years there have been some really great conversations about how can we measure impact more effectively? How can we sort of cut down on the paperwork? How can we, um, you know, connect donors with their passions? Um, I think one thing that I'm really proud of is, um, you know, I, and this is maybe unusual for a person living in Washington, D.C., I don't know everything about this. And I sort of put that right up in front of the shop window. You know, I know a, a lot about education and social innovation and the sort of literacy context, but there are a lot of topics that are not my specialization, you know, climate change, gender issues, other topics. But having done this work for so long, and you know this, this world is pretty small and I've come to become good friends and, 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 and sort of working colleagues with a lot of different social entrepreneurs who are leading national and global efforts in different categories in the women's space, in the climate change space, in the, you know, racial equity space, in all kinds of areas. And I thought to myself, you know, my gosh, what if, we change this dynamic where it sort of feels like funders are kind of on high and the social entrepreneurs working in the trenches are just sort of eager for whatever table scraps might fall their way. And exactly. And, and you know, yes, let's talk about how um, philanthropists can help 
fund uh, how philanthropists can help social entrepreneurs, but let's also talk about how social entrepreneurs can help philanthropists. What can philanthropists learn from practitioners about mm -hmm. how to think about structuring their giving, about how to think about how to connect with the organization, how to advocate and do things in more than right checks. So if we can sort of level that playing field and create a space where those conversations can happen, mm -hmm. I think that we have a real opportunity to advance the field. Okay, you said a lot there. Um, what I like about that last little bit that you said is I, I really think that that perspective will level the power dynamic across the sector. And when we do that, um, we'll be able to really have impact. The other thing you said, and one of the things that I think is a real talent, are people who don't know what they don't know, and they have a talent for attracting other people who are smarter than them. And I have to say, when I looked at your website and I saw all of your experts, there's a little girl in me that thought there's no way I can play in that sandbox. Like, those folks are super wicked smart and talented, aren't they? Like, I don't know how you did that, but they're all incredible. It's, it, you know, I am so honored to to have these folks and, you know, the, these, you know, Alex Guerre, you know, he's the CEO of Donors Choose. He's running this amazing organization that comes from a, a deep background of, of sort of focusing on racial equity in terms of philanthropic giving, you know, Abby Falick, who founded Global Citizen Year. These are people who have been leading work for 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 generations in some cases but i gotta tell you they are all so freaking nice they're <laughs> funny they're witty they're smart um and, and they're just a pleasure to work with and i think that that's another thing that i've been very clear mm -hmm. about um you know life is short people and yeah. uh you know we've all worked super stressful jobs for a long time this work should also be fun and mm -hmm. and i have discovered the luxury of working with really kind, passionate social change leaders, and mm -hmm. and that that is attracting high capacity donors mm -hmm. who also are just kind, open, curious people, and mm -hmm. and that dynamic is is sort of magic and and a real joy. Yeah, for sure. I want to go back just a little bit, and I don't know, maybe you don't want to call it out, but I, I'm going to. <laughs> um, it's your podcast. You can talk about whatever well, you want to do. Because, you know, we're kind of stepping around this idea of what traditional philanthropy is. And if we were going to be very, very candid and blatant about it, a lot of wealth in North America and the world has been built on the backs of slaves, has caused a great deal of harm, is not distributed equitably. And I don't mean to sound like a communist, but that is one of the, the challenges is this, the haves and the haves not have nots are getting even further and further and further apart. Um, and the people who stand to benefit often don't have a seat at the table or a voice. 100%. Is it fair to say that those are some of the things that your untraditional philanthropic model are trying to change? You know, it it absolutely is. And I, for those of you who can't see me in my glamorous closet, am a white man, you know, and for a, a long time, a lot of white men have had a lot of control and a lot of power in our society. And 
you know, I think that we have to have a recognition of that inequity and that history mm-hmm. in sort of everything that we do, um, um, which is one reason why, you know, this is not just all about me. And, and I'm so glad that you mentioned these experts, you know, about 85% of them are women, people of color, members of the LGBT community, um, because I think that it's super important. And I want to echo what you said and then add a layer. I think on one hand, it's super important to give voice to women, people of color, people with disabilities, people from the LGBT community, people who have not been in these conversations for a long time. And it's also super important to give voice to members of those communities who are running organizations serving those communities specifically, um, because those are the folks on the front lines who know what's working firsthand, who have seen the impact, who know how to scale powerful ideas. And and I sort of recognize that my approach is not for everyone. Right. But for the people that it's right for, they know it very quickly. They 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 hear, oh my goodness, I could sit down and speak with someone who has been running an organization like this for 20 years and who has done X and Y and Z. And yes, maybe I decide to donate to that person's organization and that would be amazing. Or maybe that person makes me smarter and that person tells me some lessons they've learned that I might apply to a nonprofit I'm thinking of starting myself, or I can speed up um, my own learning curve by avoiding some mistakes that they made, or God forbid, we can avoid building parallel train tracks to try to get to the same destination. So I think, I think we can all get smarter by learning from people, especially those whose life experiences complement our own. Mm-hmm. Parallel train tracks to get to the same station. That just speaks to the incredible waste of resources and effort in our it, sector, doesn't it? So true. And, you know, I, you know, I worked in the private sector a while at Boston Consulting Group and Coca-Cola and I was used to competition in the private sector. Mm-hmm. I was super surprised to discover all of the competition that exists in the nonprofit sector, which is not to say that there aren't incredible collaboration models and some organizations that are super focused on that. But, you know, I I also understand why there is a feeling of competition because these people have been in such a resource-constrained world for so long because of some of the funding dynamics that we're talking about um that that there is a lot of competition and there is a lot of you know parallel work Mm -hmm. um which is one reason that that i'm excited to bring so many leaders together you know not just one leader on climate change but three or four who could sit down with a with a donor and say here are three or four different approaches to that problem you know let us help you understand the pros and cons of each and and let's not make any assumptions about which might be right for you because it depends on the specifics and let's let's get three or four different perspectives to make us smarter right and then find which one resonates with you the most and one of the things that you i'm just flipping over to your website right now i love 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 <laughs> yeah i'm having a little girl crush but what i love is your um three things we don't do and you very clearly uh 
lay out who you are and who you are not, who you want to work with and who you, you do not want to work with. What inspired you to do that? You know, that page is probably the one that I love the most. Yeah, and me it, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, it's one that I considered cutting altogether because it's a little bold, right? I mm -hmm. think, um, you know, I... I have a clear view on the on the value that I think we can add. And I know where it works and I know where it doesn't. And I think in the sort of what we don't do page, we wanted to kind of just own that to help people understand if this is a good match. You know, like one of the points there says we don't work with unkind people. And it originally said we don't work with assholes, but my husband made me change it. And he was right. Um, because, you know, and, and we talked about that a little bit and it's not just about wanting to work with nice people. It's, it's about wanting, being really clear that we want to work with people who are open to learning mm -hmm. and to dramatically accelerating their impact with the recognition that if they knew how to do that, they wouldn't be in this situation in the first place. Right. So, so I think the, the openness is, is a real is a real important one. There's also a point there that says, you know, we we recognize that tax benefits are a real thing. You know, there are some folks in this sector that sort of frown on um, individuals getting tax benefits from making philanthropic gifts, you know, and, and that's just not my point of view. I, I, ran an organization for a very long time that relied on on a large portion of tax deductible gifts. And we did freaking amazing work with those gifts and had really powerful relationships with the people who gave those gifts. And and our country created these laws to encourage civic participation in social change efforts. So we we recognize and, you know, are good with that dynamic and what we want to do is to help those people who are in a position of selling their company or whatever it might be um you know so many folks kind of get to that point in the process and then like in the last two percent of the conversation they're like oh you know who should we give this money to and and you know usually there are a lot of older straight white men around a table and and that money might go to harvard or or some you know and i went to harvard and i loved it They've got a billion dollar endowment. They don't need any more money. And and these innovative, scrappier, smaller social impact organizations run by people who aren't in those conversations at Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley or wherever. The social sector is miss. you know, these donors are missing out on a huge wealth of information by not being connected with those people in those moments. Mm -hmm. And because I have relationships with a lot of these banks and a lot of those advisors, I feel like I have the opportunity to kind of open the door and bring some of these other folks into the conversation who wouldn't be there. It's sort of a like Hamilton in the room where it happens thing. Like, <laughs> what can we do to to broaden the conversations, yeah. um, you know, and, 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 and so that, that's what that page is sort of getting. And have, I'm not finished talking about this page. It's my favorite page on the internet, but you're talking about, <laughs> I'm going to quote you on that. No, sure. Um, you're talking about, uh, 
really having collective impact. But the other thing that we were talking about before is a lot of these organizations are, are competing with each other because they operate with a scarcity mindset and their elbows out in yep. their space. Um, but you actively encourage philanthropists to consider operating support so that we can help organizations stop worrying about keeping the lights on and start thinking about having an impact in their communities together. A hundred percent. I know that general operating support was the hardest money that mm -hmm. I had to raise. Mm -hmm. And and it's funny when you talk to a, um, you know, a, a, a private sector CEO or a founder or an investor, they understand the context of investing in a leadership team in in the private sector you know that's exactly what they look at yes they look at business plans yes they look at sort of performance today but a big big factor of most private sector investment decisions are specifically the confidence in the in the ceo and or the leadership team but weirdly when when people start thinking about a philanthropic gift often that that approach does not transfer you know um yeah. and and then we find ourselves in a world of kind of endless reporting requirements which take the leadership team away from the work that they're supposed to be doing mm -hmm. and and a hesitancy to fund general operating support whereas in the private sector they usually say look we believe in you as a leader we believe in your vision we trust you to know how best to run your company. We're going to make an investment so that you can do that. And we look yeah. forward to, you know, fabulous financial returns. Yeah. What we need to do is more about leadership teams in the social sector saying, we believe in you. We trust your work. We're not going to micromanage you. And we look forward to fabulous social returns. Absolutely. Yeah. And imagine if we could do some of that, maybe we would start to solve some of these problems because it's a little embarrassing that we've been doing this work for so long and we're not solving these problems. In fact, I would say they're getting worse in many respects. The other super, it's not super confident. Con anyway, this idea. Oh gosh, Chandler, I could talk to you all day long, but this idea that, um, we need to cater to the donors, put them on a pedestal, do whatever they ask for, that power dynamic. And, and wealthy, privileged, older people are kind of used to that. I would say I have met some philanthropists who don't want that. There are some newer generation philanthropists who want to really roll up their sleeves and get in and do the work. But we still wrestle with that mindset of catering to the donor. And I love that you say... We treat everyone with equal respect. We are all soldiers in the same army. You know, yeah, we, the, the first part of that says we don't put anyone on a pedestal. Yeah. Or maybe we put, maybe we put everyone on a pedestal. And, and that, that is illustrative of my approach. You know, I am wildly, I have wild gratitude to our donors for what they're doing. Mm -hmm. I also have wild gratitude to these social entrepreneurs who in most cases have given up very lucrative other opportunities in order to lead the life-changing work that they're doing. And they're absolutely on a pedestal. So I have this amazing job where I'm sort of sitting around with all these amazing people yeah. and, and I truly do respect all of them. And 
I only want to work with social entrepreneurs who respect their donors. And I want to work with donors who respect their social entrepreneurs. And, and when you sort of set up that dynamic, it's, it's actually very liberating for both the donor and the social entrepreneur, because the donor can sort of exhale and, and, and realize that they're in a little bit more of a safe space where they can, you know, admit, ignorance in certain categories and and the social entrepreneur doesn't feel like she or he has to kind of perform all the time and can have a candid conversation not only about the things that are going well but about the real challenges and then that's when the magic starts to happen because you're talking about the real stuff Mm -hmm. and that's how real change starts Mm -hmm. so we'll put a link to that page on our website because there's a lot to be learned by it but what really strikes me about this initiative and you is that it just reeks of values. You are so clear on what your values are and also very clear on what the values of this enterprise is, are, is, is, are, values, are. So that's work that a lot of people, that happens way upstream. And that's something, of course, I'm doing a lot of work with folks on right now in the coaching. Because when we know what our values are, it makes everything else so much easier. We all of a sudden know what sandbox we want to play in, right? It's true. It's true. And and you're so right that that helping people, you know, I, I probably spent about two and a half years thinking about these questions vis-a-vis untraditional philanthropy. And, and, you know, I don't claim to have figured out everything, but I'm really proud of that work. And I, I made a conscious decision to build this slowly instead of build this quickly because I wanted to do the work up front. Um, and it's in, incredibly important because I, a facet of what we do with clients is that same sort of process with regard to their own lives. Some people come to us and say, I totally know that, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion is what I want to focus on. Let's start in that sandbox. And then we have a series of very interesting conversations. Other people say, gosh, you know, I don't know. You know, we've, we've given a lot of money away, but you know, we, we focused on this topic for a while. And then, you know, my sister got passionate about this thing and we focused on that for a while and they gauge their impact by the amount of dollars they've given away instead of gauging their impact by the mm-hmm. change that those dollars have, have driven. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and often that's because they haven't had a focus, either a geographic focus or a issue area focus and helping them think about that um, brings a lot of clarity to their own work, um, often enabling them to kind of focus and double down so that they can point to real success that is deeply meaningful to them on a personal level or deeply meaningful to their family Mm -hmm. as a family. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I know it's a new initiative and you're just launching. You've been working on it for a long time. Is there a donor or philanthropist that comes to mind that just brings all of this together for you? Well, it might be a hard question. I know I put you on the spot. 
it's a hard question, but I do think there are, you know, there there really are um, a number of people that are doing amazing work in this space. Um, you know, Mackenzie Scott is is really giving us a great example of how someone can spend a lot of time identifying leaders that she trusts, who she connects with, who share her values, and then trusting them to do their work um, with unrestricted general operating gifts. I think that is a fabulous example that 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 is inspiring a lot of donors in a lot of ways. Um, I would be remiss if I did not mention one of my own life heroes, Dolly Parton. Yeah, um, I saw a picture of you on your website and I actually wrote it down. Ask him about Dolly Parton. So I'm mean, glad you brought that up. <laughs> really should talk about Dolly Parton anytime we have the opportunity to do so. Um, but no joke, like she she comes to her work with such authenticity and I think that authenticity is a value that we as an organization really hold dear. And, you know, she is a smart businesswoman who makes tough decisions and, you know, demands excellence, but she does it with such heart and such empathy and such sincerity. Like you can see some celebrities supporting causes and you can just tell when the connection is not an authentic one, you know, Dolly gets it and, and does a lot of work that we hear about and candidly does a lot of work quietly that no one ever hears about. And I think there are many things that I admire about her, but specifically in the context of philanthropy, her authenticity, um, I think is a great example, um, um, for, you know, that, that we have sort of incorporated into our DNA. Mm -hmm. I have there are also men, but I, I, I none of them could no, at the moment. But that's okay. We we can't list them all, <laughs> but hopefully the ripple is going to spread and spread. And, and part of that spread, another priority that you've identified is moving on to the younger generation, like bringing the kids into the decisions, and they may be making different decisions than their parents. So there might be a tension point there. And, and, you know, I, I do think as we look forward that that's a big topic. I mean, our country is probably preparing for one of the largest intergenerational wealth transfers that we've ever seen. And, <clears throat> excuse me, we are certainly seeing this where, where we might have a family with maybe three generations and maybe the grandparents created the wealth or started the work and and the 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 parent generation has expanded that and now the the third generation are sort of joining the effort and and that can be really complicated and i think one thing that we often do in those situations is to work with folks to find common ground so that everyone feels that they have a seat at the table and can see their passions playing out in the work that the family is doing. And, and sometimes you can work with the family to identify one cause or one issue area that everyone is behind. Or sometimes it's about, you know, creating pockets of sort of discretionary funds for individual people so that they can have their project with their own sort of set of impact guidelines. <clears throat> because what you don't want is this sort of new generation checking out 
-hmm. you want the opposite. You want them sort of investing and, 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 and checking in because, you know, our society is changing quickly and there are new problems coming up every day. Um, and, and I think it's super important to, to give a seat at the table to those younger generations sooner rather than later so that we can include them in the dialogue and, and engage them in, in authentic and meaningful ways. Mm-hmm. So if this conversation were to end right now, what would be left unsaid? Hmm. You know, I think I I I'll go back to sort of what we were saying before about um kind of real talk. I I have a lot of conversations with with um donors and and I'll start by saying you know what are what are your goals and and they'll give what my mom would have called the Sunday school answer which mm-hmm. is the answer that they think they're supposed to say and that usually goes something like you know we're very fortunate we want to give back we'd like to help a cause that is meaningful to us and and all of that is true but it, it's it's not the whole kind of real talk answer. And and I find that if we can have a glass of wine or we can kind of go deeper into that conversation to the sort of vulnerable, authentic place that you were talking about, sometimes they say things like, you know, my husband and I have had this company for 30 years and we've built it from nothing and it we we don't have children. This has been my baby. I'm really nervous about giving it up. And I'm worried that I won't have anything to do with my time. And I'm worried that I won't feel um, like I'm adding value. And I'd really love to add value. And then maybe we talk more and maybe it was a technology company. And this person is super passionate about tech and trends in tech and innovations in tech and women in tech. And, and we might come to discover that, you know, not only could she write a check to maybe a tech centered nonprofit, or maybe her passion is, I don't know, climate change, write a check to a climate change nonprofit, but then discover that, I don't know, maybe once a month, she does a call with the chief technology officer to help that person understand new and emerging trends and to actually use the skills that she spent her life developing to advance social change in a very real way such that she feels an authentic personal connection. And and when we can have those conversations about sort of the real person drivers not only the real sort of tax drivers i think that's where the real magic happens and and those are are conversations that that are sometimes hard for people to have but i i like to think that i am an easy person to talk to and and if we can find a way to go there um i think that's where the real impact starts to happen yeah so you're speaking to trust you have to really trust that the person you're talking to has your 
best interests that you're there you're there together and then when you can open up the heart you can change the world absolutely and it's just like any other relationship you know <clears throat> whether you're looking for a job or you're hiring someone or you're going on a date you want that trust you want that back and forth you want that sort of person who you feel like you can be honest with even if it's maybe a, an unflattering side or or topic and and we all have those sides right mm -hmm. um but but when you can find i mean i'm sure in your own life you know the your go-to people are the ones that you can have those conversations with and it's kind of weird to think that you would be in a conversation with someone where potentially thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars are going to be moving and not to have that same level of trust with that person, you right. know? Yeah, it doesn't uh, make sense. It doesn't make sense, but but we've not thought about it in that way for a really long time. And I think that's why, you know, I like to think of myself this way. And I know that our, our experts are this way, you know, creating a space where we can have those real conversations. And again, the, the social entrepreneurs can be just as honest and say, look, I'm going to tell you that we've got a problem in XYZ right now. And that's not, I'm not putting that in the front window in our annual report because I need I need some real trust to figure that out. Mm -hmm. And you told me your vulnerability and now I can tell you ours. And how in the world are we going to fix this? And mm -hmm. that's, you know, people have not been having those tough conversations for a long time because they are somehow, you know, intimidating um or or scary but but if we can create an environment of trust then you can have those conversations and you can accelerate that change and that's that's what it all comes back to so excited for you so grateful to meet you oh I my goodness you are my new i i just i want to come to canada i yeah. want to come visit uh no i i i so appreciate the work that you're doing because i think that candor um in this space is is it's such a it's exhilarating you know um and it's also kind of a balm at the same time and we need both of those things so every time i connect with you i feel i am also drinking coffee so i also feel like i could leap tall buildings in a single bound but only part of that is the caffeine a big part <laughs> is is you in this dynamic and i just i'm so grateful for getting to to meet your listeners and and thank you for having me mm. Thank you. We'll put your contact information in the show notes. People can visit your website. And can I take a screenshot of you in the closet to post? <laughs> of course you can. How, how, how to say no? Look at your camera. <laughs> All right, Chandler. Thank you so much. It's just always a treat. <laughs> um, well, I can't, I can't thank you enough. And um, we'll talk soon. Whew. I can't wait to dig back into conversation with Chandler again. He will be back for sure. Please remember to like, subscribe, share. Tell us what you think about this conversation. Hopefully, like me, you're super excited about the collective impact that Chandler's work will have on our sector. So folks, let's keep building community through connection and candid conversation. I'm so glad that you spent time here with us and I look forward to seeing you next time.